God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts right now. We are unable to receive your message. We are unable, unable to be changed unless the Holy Spirit works in us. And so we ask, as Colossians asks to begin, that we would be filled with your son, Jesus. That we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That the things that we are learning, we would be able to apply to the everyday tasks in life. The simple, mundane, weekly agendas of all of our lives. Because the gospel is not just for the profound experiences, it's for the mundane, simple tasks. And I pray that that would be embedded in our hearts so much that it would change our life this week. We pray for all these things in your name. Amen. So as we begin, but first, Jesus, what I want you to begin... <laughs> What I want you to uh, do right now is actually this. I'm going to have, I'm going to give you one minute to do this. Whether in the back of your journal or on the piece of paper that you're writing with, what I want you to do is spend one minute, write out as much as you can your to-do list for this week. Everything that you have to do this week and accomplish this week. Take one minute, write down everything that you have to do this week. And... We'll try and not be filled with too much anxiety and overwhelming stress when you see your list of to-do items this week. Take one week, one week, one minute to do that. And I wish we had Jeopardy music. We don't, unfortunately. Oh, we do have music. Thank you, Willow. Wow, way to go, Willow. Thank you. This is kind of nice elevator music as we figure out our to-do lists for the week. This is actually, it's really dramatic. It's getting dramatic. So, okay. I think that's good. That was about to be spirit of the living God, wasn't it? I was about to sing it. I'm not going to. So, as you look at your to-do list, you probably only figured out a, a few things. But as you, even if you think about your to-do list for the week, especially when we start this ministry or school year, and some of you are beginning things for the very first time, whether that's post-secondary school, new grade, uh, school in general as, as my middle child, maybe it's a new job, or just the start of a new year. When you tend to write out your to-do list, which I do Monday mornings, early Monday mornings, for that week, how do you feel? The sense of overwhelming stress of everything that has to be accomplished this week, right? Anyone with me? Mondays tend to be that stressful of like, how am I supposed to do all of these things in just one week? And I think that's the tension of the book of Colossians. And that's what we want to focus on in the book of Colossians. And it's not necessarily, I don't believe that anyone in here, if you call yourself a Christian, would say, no, I don't want to put Jesus first in my life. I don't know if anyone would actually say that if they're a Christian, they've come to Restoration Church. But I think the tension is, how can I actually do that? Because what I've experienced even in my own life and in, 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 in talking with people in the church, it's, it's whether they should join a Bible study or serve or disciple, what is usually the response coming back? I just don't have time to do it. 
And so I think Colossians lives in the tension of we want to put Jesus first, but how can you actually do that in a very full, busy week? And so today what we're going to be focusing on is not necessarily specifically what you do differently. But Paul is going to focus on this first things first. It's, this is the question you need to wrestle with, and this is the question of the passage if you want to write this down and re- meditate on this. It's not what you necessarily do differently. It's whom are you trying to please? Whom are you trying to please? So with that being said, if you're not already in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, turn there right now, and I'm going to ask you to stand as I read from our passage this morning. Colossians 1, verse 1, and today is going to be kind of a larger passage, and I'm really, this is why you should get Sam Storms' book, The Hope of Glory, because I'm not going to be able to dig deep into everything here, really just kind of focusing on some, a few key items from this passage. We are going to slow right down starting next week, but this week is kind of a bigger passage. So this is 1, 1 to 14, says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Then he says in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the hope that you have for all the saints, because of the hope, or sorry, the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Can we say amen to that? Just as it does in Restoration Church. Just as you learn it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And this is the part we're really going to focus on today. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy, the verses are not inspired, so 12 should be moved probably two words up. With joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. As you can see, there's a lot going on in the first passage. But I think Colossians in general, not just this passage, is really important for us at Restoration Church for a few reasons. For one, it's, it, well, it's not just for its content, but also its church. Because Paul writes this book to a church in the city of what's called Colossae, which is a small and rather insignificant city in comparison to the other cities that he writes to, Philippi, Ephesus, Rome, all of these other cities that he's writing to. Colossae is probably the smallest, most insignificant city that he writes a letter to. And this church is likely a smaller, insignificant church, but is also young in a few ways, probably in age, or at least in spiritual maturity, because what we're going to look at in the next few weeks is that they were a church who was young, but in need of maturing in their faith. 
but also young in just duration, that it hadn't been planted that long ago and planted by a guy that we can see in this passage whose name was Epaphras. Does that sound familiar to you at all, other than the name Epaphras? A church that was small and insignificant that needed maturing, but was young in duration, maybe only a year old. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you at all. I think it's talking about the church down the street, actually. Not only that, but Colossae, even though it was small and insignificant, was near a major highway. Not called the 401, but in our, in our case, it would be the 401. But this is really important for us because the authors, Paul and Timothy, even though this was a small, insignificant church that needed maturing, they were thankful based on two things, right? In verse 5, or in verse 4, it says, Since we heard of your first faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. And may that be said for Restoration Church, that when people look at us or, 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 or meditate on what Restoration Church actually is, that we're known for two things, our faith in Jesus and our love for each other. I mean, that's as simple as it gets in a church. And I think if those two things can be said about that, us, and we're doing a lot of things right, but they were those two things because of their hope that had been laid up for them in heaven. But it's important to understand, though, that Paul and Timothy weren't just thankful for that and weren't just hopeful for those reasons. More than just their faith and their love, their assurance was based on the next verse that they had heard before in the word of truth, which is also known as the gospel, that has come to them. And here's the truth about the gospel. In the entire world, it's been bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. See, that's our assurance. Because the gospel is active and moving and continues to change lives on a macro scale in the entire world, which it still does 2,000 years later, but also on a micro scale in the life of Griffin and Aaron and Shelley. That's the assurance that we have that God is still going to work in our church as he is continuing to work in this church in Colossae. But there is a problem that Paul is addressing that I want to kind of lay out here just as we begin this book. Because Paul doesn't just send letters to thank, but he, to thank them, but he also sends letters to mostly address a problem that had crept up in the church. And here's, here's the problem that, that was, was happening. Like I say, they were located just off a major highway, and so therefore, there, there was a mix of many religious and philosophical beliefs and experiences. It's almost like whatever is happening in the GTA is going to make its way, back, way, way down to Cambridge eventually along the 401 corridor. Kind of a similar thing. Whatever ideas or religious experiences spring up in the GTA are eventually going to make their way down to Cambridge. It's kind of what was going on in Colossae. Whether it be Jewish tradition or Greek pluralistic religious experience, or philosophical experience. Here is the problem that, is, that Paul is addressing, and I think still we have to address ourselves in our church. Here it is. The pressure, no, go to the next slide. The pressure to fill your life with meaningful experiences. The pressure to fill your week with meaningful experiences. Apart from Jesus Christ in order for your life to be satisfied. 
Almost like whatever the latest craze is that brags on their ability to find spiritual fulfillment in their program. It's like you've got to try this in order to really live, whether that be the latest book or the latest blog post or whatever it may be. We are under a pressure to fill our week, our schedules, with meaningful experiences other than Jesus Christ in order to be spiritually satisfied. And I still think that goes on today. Because Paul and Timothy's concern, they have this concern because they've come to understand life in a radically different way and their lives have been radically changed. When Paul was confronted with, by Jesus on the road to Damascus and his eyes were finally opened, he had been so changed that he writes to this church, as we're going to find out in chapter 4 later on, that he writes with his own hand from a prison cell and addresses them, I love this, in the midst of that pressure to fill your life with other religious experiences. In verse 2, he greets them like this to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That in Christ already at the beginning of the letter cements them in what their identity as a Christian was really about. That you are cemented in the person of Jesus Christ. How you talk, how you live, the experiences that you have must be cemented in the person of Jesus Christ. And I love when he greets them and says, to the saints or the holy ones and faithful brothers. He doesn't actually use that greeting in any other epistle or letter. I love that he says, the faithful brothers. And I think what he's getting at is that that for them to maintain their gospel, Jesus' allegiance and not stray from that. As Douglas Moo, who's a commentator, says this on the screen. Here's Here's to summarize the purpose of Colossians. To demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ for the believer in every spiritual need. That's what Colossians is all about. Or as Paul says in verse 18, if you have your journal or your Bible, you need to highlight and circle many, 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 many times the second half of verse 18, which summarizes the entire book. When it says, he is the head of the body of the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then it says this, this is the part you got to highlight or you can memorize this. Here's the purpose, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be first. And based on all of these things, Paul prays this prayer for them. And I don't know if you've ever found this, that the things that you pray for are what you, typically what you desire most in life. Those of you who are in college, when I used to work a lot with young adults, I can guarantee you the thing that was going to come up in every prayer session was someone asking for God to show them the future. (laughs) Lord, I need to know the future. I need to know where my life is going. Why is that? Because they were scared of the future. Usually what we pray for is what we desire most. So if that's health, then we usually desire health most. So Paul could literally pray anything for them. But this is what he wants, this is his desire. This is what he wants for this young, immature church. Because the gospel is still growing and changing people, as it says in verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. This is his desire. This is what he prays for them. Look down in verse 10. We're going to cover verse 9 in a second. Look down at verse 10. This is what your life should look like. This is the goal. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing 
to him. It's what he wants our life to look like. It's what he wants our to-do list to look like, our schedule to look like, that it would be fully pleasing in all things, in all areas, that it would be pleasing to God. This is really important for this reason. Any people pleasers in the audience? Any people pleasers in the audience? That's most hands in the room, including probably both of mine. Uh, this is really important because we, a, a lot of us tend to be people pleasers, which means we really struggle with we want approval. And I know when Brad, Colin, and I have sat down, we've, we've all like, what do we need to pray for? Our, to get over our, our, our sense of need for approval. And I think if you're in front of people, you struggle with that a little bit. Here's, here's why this is so important. Those of us who are people pleasers, if you look down on your to-do list, here's the scary part. I think a lot of our to-do lists or agendas or schedules are determined, are directly determined by just trying to please everyone. Like the things that we have to do in our life and the reason we might be so busy is because we're trying to please everyone. If you've ever thought about that before. I know I've sat down in my agenda being like, I don't even know why I'm doing the things I'm doing, but apparently people are telling me I need to do these things. And I'm trying to please everybody. I think your schedule can be determined by priorities that are directly determined by trying to please everyone. Here's, here's what a people-pleasing mindset looks like, and I speak this from personal experience. First one in a people-pleasing mindset is this, a dishonest responses. Okay? <laughs> What are people pleasers known for? They cannot say the word no, which really affects your schedule. If you cannot say the word no, that is really going to affect your schedule. And I learned this from personal experience when I started out in my ministry, uh, full-time job at Temple Baptist Church. By about a month in, I was doing everything because every person who asked me to do something, I said, sure, I can handle that for you. No problem. Here's the problem with people pleasers, though, is that we say no, but what do we actually want to say? I mean, we say yes, but what do we actually want to say? No. It's like, this is not really for me, but I do not have the courage to say no to them. And so we, we embrace everything that tends to come our way, and I think that translates onto ourself as well. Like, we can be dishonest with ourselves and look at our week and say, I have to do all of these things without realizing you probably don't have to do all of those things. Secondly, a people pleaser tends to have a fuzzy calling. Because other people are determining what their calling is in life, what they are to do in that week, I, str I have struggled with, I don't even know if this is what I'm supposed to do. It's just everyone's telling me this is what I have to do. Is this your calling or someone else's living through you? Thirdly, people-pleasing mindset tends to, in their schedule, have relational anxiety. And <laughs> if I'm laying awake at night, it's not because I've had a busy week. If I've had a busy week, i got stuff to do, I am out like that because I'm just busy. And my mind's been going, I am out. You know what will keep me awake at night, though? I think someone's upset with me. 
I've disappointed somebody. And I'm, ang- and I'm anxious because here, here's how it affects your schedule. You think, I can't change because what is that person going to think about me? I can't change my schedule. I can't give that thing up because what is that person going to think? I'm going to let them down. And I'm not saying this to, to put that on you. I really struggle with that too. That's, that's my struggle too. I really struggle with having a schedule that is based on, directly determined by pleasing everybody else. Here's the cool part about this passage though. When, when Paul says he's praying for them so that they will be full, live lives fully pleasing to God. Here's the cool part about the passage. That, that word pleasing, actually in most cases, when it's referred to people, as in people pleasing, like you're pleasing this person, you know how it's usually used? Negatively. It's actually used, mostly used in the Bible as a negative, that you're, you're pleasing everyone around you. However, when God is the object of our pleasing, obviously the verse completely flips on its head and uses it in a very positive light. And here's what we, here's what we understand from that. That moving from a people-pleasing mindset to a God-pleasing mindset will turn your priorities on its head and will probably change your schedule. Have a whole new list of what to-dos the to-dos are. It begs the question, as we fly through this, what does a life fully pleasing to God look like? Four things right from the passage. These are not from the mind of Aaron Ottaway. They're right from the passage. What does that look like? Look what it says. So as to, so as to walk in a manner, fully, manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Here's the first one. What does it say? Bearing fruit in every good work. It's the first thing. A life that's fully pleasing to God, the first one is bearing fruit. Your life's got to bear fruit. I think that's really difficult for us because in an information world, we are accustomed to seeing top 10 reasons to do this or a BuzzFeed article that says all of these things, how you need to change your life. We are really accustomed to uh, 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 accepting good ideas but doing nothing with them. And so as Christians, what we can do is, is, is open God's word and look at all these good ideas and then be okay with doing nothing, absolutely nothing with them. However, a life that's fully pleasing to God bears fruit. As the scriptural principle is, A tree that bears fruit is a healthy tree. And I don't think it's just good works. I think in the context of Colossians, it's that you are passing on what you know about Jesus to another person. And so when you look at your to-do list, it begs the question, are you doing that in your schedule? Are you passing on the things that you know about Jesus to another person, in turn, bearing fruit? fruit and giving it away. Secondly, what a life fully pleasing to God looks like, bearing fruit in every good work. Second one is this, increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. And what I've kind of summarized that is a thirst for theology. I think in our churches, we're scared to use the word theology. It's like that's for crusty old professors to deal with. The young hip Christianity is about just doing life together. (laughs) But we need to have a thirst for theology because that's just getting to know God at a deeper and deeper and deeper level. And here's why we do that. Because without knowing God at a deeper level, our moral discernment decomposes as well. We actually don't know what is right, right and wrong if we don't know the heart of God. 
Romans 1.28 says that. I think it's on the screen. Oh, it's not even on the screen. But Romans 1.28, you can look at that. I haven't memorized it. But what it says is, those, because we haven't acknowledged God, we've given ourselves over to essentially morally corrupt things. It starts with not knowing God, though. So a thirst for theology. And I just want to throw a little plug. That's why we do Bible studies, guys. We don't do them because that's what churches do. We want you to join Bible studies because... We want our church to have a thirst for theology. And those Bible studies are not just a time to do life together. They're a time to get to know God more together. Thirdly, a life that's fully pleasing to God has a strong sense of calling. Look what it says. It says, increasing the knowledge of God. And then thirdly, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Remember I said a people-pleasing mindset tends to have a fuzzy calling or non-committal calling. I don't even know where I'm going in life. A life that's fully, fully pleasing to God has a strong sense of calling. A sense that what God has called you to and placed you in, he will give you the strength to finish it. He will give you the endurance and patience to finish it. I don't know about you, but there's been many times in Restoration Church in this first year where I have said to myself, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I don't know if I can do this anymore. And this is not to pat me on the back, but by the grace of God, God has given me and our church the strength to keep going, which means he's not done with us yet. But a life that's fully pleasing to God is a strong sense of calling. Lastly, it says this, being strength with all power, and then lastly in, in verse 12, actually two words before, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Gratitude based in joy. In Deuteronomy verse 28, which you can look at after verse 47 and 48, the people of God were serving the Lord, but it says that God gave them over to their enemies, not because they weren't serving the Lord, but they weren't doing it with gladness of heart. So last night, Nikki and I were telling our children to pick up their toys. Now, they eventually got it done. But were mommy and daddy very pleased with them that we had to push them to get the job done with crying, with tears falling down their face and whining happening because we are trying to get, we, we, to pick up a couple of toys? No. And I think the same thing happens with our God. It's like, yeah, we can do the stuff. We can serve. But it's like, if we're doing it, like, okay. You know, we have to, God's got to push it. Like, keep, it's, don't, it's a life not fully pleasing to him. It says, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Gratitude embraces all of life because we realize what God is doing. G.K. Chesterton once said, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. And I wish I could spend more time, but I've got to go back to the actual point of this passage. Because that is what a life that's fully pleasing to God looks like. Bearing fruit, a thirst for theology, a strong sense of calling, and gratitude, living with gratitude based in joy. However, we can't just get there. Because what Paul actually prays for, even though that's the end goal, that your life would be fully pleasing to God, there's no actual way that Liam can just wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, I'm going to be grateful today. I am going to have a strong sense of calling. 
I am going to have a thirst for theology. I'm going to bear fruit today. None of us can just uh, uh, get the strength to do that. And that's why Paul prays this, because here's the key. In order for you to do that, he says this in verse 9. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what he asks. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul could have asked for anything. Lord, I pray, this church is struggling, I pray that a rich guy came in here and dropped two million dollars on this church. Lord, I pray that this church could find a better place to meet. Lord, I pray that they would remove that really difficult person. He could have prayed for anything. But he prays for this church and says, I pray that you would give them a knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That might not be at the top of your ask list, but it probably should be for all of us. Because when it says wisdom and understanding, that's pleasing God in the most base crises and decisions of everyday life. That's not just for pastors to philosophize about what we're going to do and and vision and dream about what we're going to do. That's for the base tomorrow morning cleaning up breakfast. What does my life look like? And firstly, as we begin this series through Colossians, that's what has to come from our heart. We all have to be open and ask God, beg God to give us this message, I want to be filled with the knowledge of your will. We need to ask for that. Because I can't just grab that. Because here's why. In verse 13, it actually says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. See, we need the knowledge of God's will, and we can't just grab it, we have to ask for it from God. Because we live in a domain of darkness. And when it says domain, that's just not like there's, there's some bad things that you can do. It's, that's, that's like a kingdom thing. Everything revolves around darkness. All decisions, the way that you think, the things that you see are in this domain of darkness. And sometimes when we think of darkness and light, we think of good and evil. And yes, that's kind of how the Bible often describes darkness and light. But I believe what Paul is using here is when he says knowledge of his will, when he talks about the domain of darkness, what we learn from darkness is confusing. You don't know where to go when it's dark, when there are no lights on. So we need the knowledge of God's will because darkness is confusing. Nikki and I used to, and I think I've told this illustration before, I've I don't even know if I've told them before or not. But um, Nikki and I used to go to the Pioneer Provincial Park. Anyone ever been to the Pioneer Provincial Park? And we went for a trail. It was called the Wilderness Trail. This was back when we were in high school and just young and in love, which we still are in love. We're just not as young anymore. Um, but we, used to, we walked this wilderness trail, and me being the arrogant young man, be like, oh, I've walked this trail a million times. We went down to the beach to see the sunset, but we still had to walk a couple kilometers back to our car, and what I didn't realize was the sun goes down, and the beach is still kind of light, but as soon as you get into the trees, it's really dark, and, and it was no moon out. It was like pitch black, and all of a sudden, the arrogant young high schooler turned into a scared young high schooler. <laughs> and like, oh no, I've led my girlfriend 
here and I don't even know where to go. So we literally for two kilometers shuffled where the path was because we could not see two feet in front of us. See, darkness is confusing. You don't know where to go. Which explains our world, right? When you turn on the news, when you hear stories from other people, you're like, why, do, why is this happening? Well, the world is in a domain of darkness. It's a confusing place. That's why we need to pray for and ask for the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because you may say, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I don't know how to adult. Because we live in a domain of darkness. And I love that it says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Which, which makes us know that in order to actually see where to go, we have to be transferred, as it says, to a completely different domain, a spiritual one. It's not just Oprah wisdom and understanding. Or like BuzzFeed wisdom and understanding. To know where to go and how to adult in this world. We need spiritual wisdom and understanding. Darkness is confusing. Secondly, as I wrap up really quickly, secondly, why we need to pray for knowledge of God's will. Not only is darkness confusing, but we as human beings are unable to change our outlook. We are unable to change our outlook. And that's why we ask from God to see the light. See the, see the words that Paul uses in this passage? You might even, have, might even circle them in your journals. That you have been qualified. That you have been delivered. That you have been transferred. All of those words in reference to Aaron Odway are all passive words. It's God doing the work on my behalf. God's the one who's opening my eyes. I wasn't going to have you turn to this passage, but Paul speaks firsthand. Just turn a few pages back to Acts chapter 26. Because Paul speaks firsthand when he tells his testimony about the work of God in his life. That Paul was unable to change his outlook. But he talks to a king in this passage in Acts 26 and recounts, retells his conversion of what happened. While Paul's life was under the domain of darkness, his week was filled with meaningful experiences. What he thought was meaningful experiences... Religious experiences, says this in verse 12. This is what happened in his life. In this connection, as he's retelling the king, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. They were pleased with him. From a priest, no less. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And we had, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, you may not have any idea what that meant, but a goad was a essentially sharp, pointy pointer that farmers would use to essentially corral and, and, and direct an oxen. And what would happen is when the oxen would be stubborn and they'd want to go their own way, they would actually hurt themselves more. They'd kick against the goads. They'd actually get themselves into more pain because they weren't listening to the person trying to direct them. Do you understand the, where Jesus is get going here? And Paul says, and I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. 
For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And here's, here's his mission. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We may be unable to change our outlook, but praise God that God has done the work for me. Amen? God opens our eyes so that you can see, and maybe you've come in here to Restoration Church, and you're like, I don't even know how I got here. I think God has brought you here. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I think he has brought you here in order so that you can hear this message and be transferred from one domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's the work of God in your life, though. And I think what we take from that is that God takes pleasure in his gracious work. Like Ryan takes pleasure in his deck that he just accomplished. If Ryan just paid some other guy to do it, he wouldn't ha- nearly have as much pressure, but beca- pleasure, but because he did it, he takes pleasure in his gracious work in your life. And I wish I had more time, but lastly, i got to close with this. The reason we need to ask for the knowledge of God's will not only because the darkness is confusing and we're unable to change our outlook, but lastly, we need to be filled with Jesus. In order for you to move from a people-pleasing mindset to a God-pleasing mindset, you need to be filled with Jesus. The pressure that this church was going through is that they needed to fill their week with religious experiences. Paul is saying you need to fill your week with Jesus. But first, Jesus. And when I think he says the knowledge of God's will, this is not like a divine GPS, but in the context of Colossians, the will of God that he's talking about is a deep and understanding, a deep and abiding understanding of Jesus, that all of your decisions and discernings are based upon him. That you would be filled with Jesus. To be influenced so much that you actually begin to look like and think like the person you are filling yourself with after their image. When I was growing up, my older brother was my, my idol, my older brother Andy. I used to observe him. I used to learn from him. I would take in everything that he said. And now people actually say that when we answer the phone, the way that Andy and I talk is exactly the same. Because I filled my life with him. More than my other brothers, no offense to them. (laughs) But he was my oldest brother. And the way he played football, the way he talked to people, the compassion that he showed people, I wanted to be like that. And I filled my life learning about him. Maybe not even, I wouldn't even admit that as a kid, but I used to watch him and observe him and, and, and mold my life after his. And we're very similar now. He's taller than I am unfortunately. But I think that's what it looks like. That we so fill our lives with Jesus that we begin to speak like him and think like him and make our decisions based on his heart. Guys, I think pleasing God comes from being filled with his son. We need to ask for this as a church. 
In the book that I just read, there's a man named Sir George, and he was a man who was far from his, his mother for the entirety of the story. Was ashamed at everything that he had done, was ashamed to show his face because he had run away from home, he had gotten into a whole bunch of trouble. But finally, by the end of the book, he comes back home, and the mother hears his voice, And it sounds just like his, his brother who had, who, had never, who had never left, who would always be watching out the window for his brother's return. His, bro- his mother hears his voice and recognizes it. Not as Sir George's, because she didn't even know what, that look, what, what he sounded like as he had grown up, but it sounded like her other son. Guys, I think that God takes pleasure in us when he hears and sees us so look like his own son. Then I, say, then I think we are living a life fully pleasing to God. So let's ask for this. Let me pray. God in heaven, you are such a great God. We need to be filled with your son. As we start out this year, as we dive into this book, even as we tomorrow or even this afternoon, look ahead at everything that needs to be accomplished this week. Let us be filled with Jesus. We beg you to fill us with a knowledge of your Son. Let us reflect on the person of Jesus that our, even, even so much that our schedules would be changed, that we would li- live a life fully pleasing to you. God, we love you. We pray for all these things in your name. Amen.